there's a lot here. All our cabinets are fabulous, but uh, this one is sort of like the people's favorite. Yeah, yeah. Hi, it's Asif Manvi, back at the Smithsonian, and I am getting lost in one amazing cabinet. These are props <sighs> from the film Jurassic Park. Oh, it, wow. You know what this is? What I'm looking at right now are the eggs from Jurassic Park. The dinosaurs are breeding. This cabinet is just one of hundreds here in entertainment storage at the National Museum of American History. I've been looking for 10 objects for this podcast. You can see why it's so hard to pick. This is Clayton Moore's mask from The Lone Ranger. The Lone Ranger was an iconic television show from the 1950s, so this mask would be a good choice. You might recognize this poster. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I had that poster in my bedroom. The Farrah Fawcett. Farrah Fawcett, poster of her in the bathing suits. Right. So many people had this poster, mm-hmm. but only one museum has the actual bathing suit that she wow. wore in the poster. Holy moly. That's crazy. That's bananas that you have that. If I was 13 years old right now, I'd be uh, losing my... Uh... So you see the rest of the drawers empty, except for a glasses. Except for a glasses case. Right. This house is one of our Superman costumes, uh, Christopher Reeve Superman costumes. Uh-huh. But since that's on display, no. we'll bring out his disguise. These are Clark Kent's glasses? Clark Kent's glasses. Uh, Lars, have you, have you got a minute? That's amazing. So this is all it took. Uh, an incredible disguise, but wow, that's pretty impressive. Can I uh, take you to the airport? Not unless you can fly. <laughs> So you're going to show us. I see a laptop, a black Apple laptop (laughs) that we're looking at right now. Yes. A lot of people had these, but this was actually used on the television show Sex and the City. Uh It's Carrie Bradshaw's laptop. Is that right? Yes. So we collected this because um, Sex and the City was such an important show and kind of having comedy with females in a kind of different way. I had to wonder, are we the new Bachelors? So Carrie Bradshaw's laptop is my pick for today's episode. I'll tell you later about, yes, my own connection to this 20-year-old computer. Mostly, this laptop represented a groundbreaking TV series about four independent, imperfect women looking for romance and successful careers in New York. No topic was off limits. You know, these women were ballsy, and they were living their lives out loud. And I think that's really what it was about. I'll talk with Candace Bushnell, the real-life Carrie Bradshaw, and with a television historian who was like a lot of women watching the show, a Carrie Bradshaw wannabe. So I kind of would watch the show. It's a little embarrassing. I would watch mm-hmm. the show and then, like, go to those places that week. I'd call it playing Sex in the City. Sex in the City was a landmark moment in television. It debuted on HBO in 1998, and it ran for six seasons. In a rom-com landscape where quaint boy-meets-girl love stories were the norm, Sex and the City stood out for its bold, funny, honest, and fundamentally modern, fundamentally female perspective on sex, love, and everything in between. Welcome to the age of uninnocence. No one has breakfast at Tiffany's, and no one has affairs to remember. Instead, we have breakfast at 7 a.m., and affairs we try to forget as quickly as possible. Sarah Jessica Parker played Carrie Bradshaw, a sex columnist with a no-holds-barred take on relationships and female sexuality. 
She and her three best friends, Samantha, Miranda, and Charlotte, brunched, drank Cosmopolitans, dated, talked about sex, and had sex with an unheard-of candor for television at the time. Look, if you're a successful saleswoman in this city, you have two choices. You can bang your head against the wall and try and find a relationship, or you can say, screw it, and just go out and have sex like a man. You mean with dildos? No, I mean without feeling. Time magazine put the four stars on the cover with a headline, Who Needs a Husband? Hi, it's Carrie Bradshaw. I wanted to let you know that I'm getting married to myself. Oh, and I'm registered at Manolo Blahnik. So thanks. Bye. But for all the many, many iconic moments in Sex and the City, there's one that stands out from all the rest. In all 94 episodes and both feature films, there's always at least one moment where Carrie hovers over her laptop, writing and wondering. And I wondered, which led me to wonder. I had to wonder. I started to wonder. I couldn't help but wonder. I'm going to tell you a story now that's going to blow your mind. I have worked with this laptop on Sex and the City because I played a character named Dimitri who worked at TechServe. Number 64! Yes. Hi, oh, thank God, please, here, please tell me. Carrie Bradshaw, AKA Sarah Jessica Parker, brought her laptop to me to fix. Okay, tell me exactly what happened right before you crashed. Um, okay, I was, you know, I was just typing and then he came over and he kissed me. When was the last time you backed up your work? Um, I don't do that. So this laptop, I actually fixed this laptop on the show. Wow. So you're in the Smithsonian. You didn't even I, I know. Am, I am kind of. I should be. We would even There have, should be a little like moment here yeah, of a picture of me as fixed by. Yeah. It could be your motherboard. That's the guts of your computer. It could be bad RAM. We'll keep it here for a couple of days, run some tests. I'm Dimitri. I'll call you if we find anything. If? 78! Number 78. And that computer was on Sex and the City a lot, obviously, but this was the one episode where, I think it was maybe the, the only episode where she takes her computer to TechServe, which used to be on 23rd Street in Manhattan. This was before the Genius Bar. This was when you could get all of your Mac computers uh, fixed. And so I guess it begs the question, why? Why do you have Carrie Bradshaw's computer from Sex and the City as part of the Smithsonian collection. The laptop, we find, is really great in terms of representing this real seminal show that aired on HBO that was really a phenomenon. It served as a really vital role in the storytelling as uh, the main character, Carrie Bradshaw, uses it to write her sex column for the New York Star. After all, computers crash, people die, relationships fall apart. The best we can do is breathe and reboot. When looking at trying to collect artifacts to represent shows like Sex and the City, we really want something that tells people what the show's about. And I think the laptop really does that. I couldn't help but wonder, are men just women with balls? <laughs> and I will say, after I appeared on Sex and the City, was the first time in my career that I walked down the street the day after it had aired and every woman on the street turned her head to look at me. You know, that has never happened to me before or after. <laughs> but, but I realized in that moment, like, oh, this is a cultural phenomenon, this show. 
That laptop that Carrie would hover over, the one that the handsome and beloved Dimitri fixed in Season 4, Episode 8, My Motherboard Myself, that laptop is what I found in Smithsonian storage. I can't believe it was in a back cupboard. It was in a, It's not on display right now, but that's only because they only display about 1% of their entire collection at any given time. So That's slightly annoying. They're taking good care of it, though. I, you know, never, it wasn't just thrown in a cupboard. Before it was a television phenomenon, Sex and the City was an actual column for the New York Observer, written by an actual person, the real-life Carrie Bradshaw. Candace Bushnell. I've never seen it. You've never seen the laptop? Hmm. Did you not? I'm trying to think. No, because I didn't go to the set very often. Right. First of all, did you write on a uh, computer when you wrote the uh, book and the column? Yes. You did. I did. A laptop. And uh, yes. I mean, actually, one of the first things that I was writing on was what was that first computer? It was this big, it was square. Yeah, it was square. It was a desktop. They called it a desktop. Okay. Okay. There was. It was not a laptop. It was a desktop. That was the first thing I was writing on and carrying it around everywhere. Right. I I mean, honestly, the Apple computer was something that I couldn't afford, and HBO could. Right. Candace Bushnell was a struggling freelance writer in New York City for 15 years before she was offered her column. She proposed writing about her life and her friends, who she said were all single and crazy and their dating and mating rituals. Her Sex in the City column ran for two years. And just tell me a little bit about how you ended up writing the column in the New York Observer. Well, I've been a professional writer in New York since I was 19. Mm -hmm. So, you know, right away... You know, I had this whole thing of, you know, being a young woman and being single and being in the city. And I had lots of girlfriends. And, you know, when I first moved to New York, I actually went to acting school because I had this idea that I could make a living as an actress. Maybe I could do TV commercials. And that's how I would support myself as a writer. Wow. But... I was always writing about my life. I mean, all through the 80s, you know, I was writing about, in some ways, similar characters. I was writing about mating, dating, social politics, and being a single woman trying to fulfill that dream of having it all. That was a very specific kind of feminist dream of the 80s. And in the 90s, all those women were now in their 30s, and they were starting to make money, and they were becoming women who did not need to get married in order to support themselves in the world and in order to have agency. When single men have a lot of money, it works to their advantage. But when a single woman has money, it's a problem you have to deal with. It's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. I want to enjoy my success, not apologize for it. Bravo, honey, bravo. And I also had this thing in my head of, you know, part of my idea of being a writer and being a chronicler was I was very inspired by Dickens. And by the writers— Charles Dickens. Charles Dickens. Okay, great. You know, and by the writers in the turn of the century who—they wrote serial novels. 
And so that was really my dream job was that I was going to have this fictional column that I was going to write every week. We accept Tasty Delight instead of real ice cream, emails instead of love songs, jokes instead of poetry. It's no wonder that when faced with the real thing, we can't stomach it. Is it something we could learn to digest? Or have we become romance intolerant? And so that's really what I pushed Sex and the City to being. Maybe it was all the writing that I'd been doing was now consolidated under a title Mm -hmm. that people understood, like, oh, this is all of a piece. But it immediately became a source of interest to Hollywood and a source of interest to HBO and ABC about three or four movie companies. So that's how it started. Over the course of six years on the air, Sex and the City earned dozens of Emmy and Golden Globe nominations. It was one of the shows that helped transform HBO from home box office into the media monster it is today. And at the center of Sex and the City was Carrie Bradshaw, who became an iconic example of female empowerment. But Carrie was Candace. Kind of. Now, how much of what you were writing in the original column in The Observer was based on your personal life? It was my personal life, but it was fictionalized. And that is, that's the writing that I've been doing. It was something that I honestly, I developed it when I was probably 21. Right. And I was writing for women's magazines. I wanted to write fiction. I wanted to be paid to write fiction. So I wrote stories that were all about society and social observations and, you know, where you know, I wrote about an ambitious young woman in her 20s who was moving to the big city for the first time to find herself and a career and a man very much unlike what her mother had done. Mm. So it's this very core kernel of women doing something in their family that they have never done before, which is to go out into the world to not accept their parents' rules about dating, mating, who they should be, and to be able to have a career. That's what was actually revolutionary about Mm. it. And that's the message that's translated That seed is translated all over the world. It's like the riddle of the Sphinx. Why are there so many great unmarried women and no great unmarried men? You know, I've been all over the world, and it's hugely popular. And it's popular for that reason, is that that idea of women seeking to have control over their romantic lives and their reproductive lives and their financial lives is it's something that women want to do all over the world. You, and, and then also I imagine being single in your 30s was probably not a great thing for your family either. I mean, I know like as an Indian immigrant, right. being like my, you know, my family was not happy that I spent a great deal well, of my life single. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, I mean, that's interestingly, that's like the one part where, because I had two sisters, uh-huh. two younger sisters. My father hated when we had boyfriends. Okay. He would run them off the property. I mean, I'm not kidding. He hated so he all would of that. So he would just get rid of them somehow. He, oh, he would just be like, you know, rude. Question them uh-huh. and just make them look really, really stupid. Right. He'd like start asking them about calculus. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. All right. So he would run them. So, but, so they were, they so were dating they, and you were dating at that time as well and, and bringing boys home. Yeah. And it was, you know, I mean, my father, their parents kept a pretty, my father kept a close eye on us. So here you are writing this column. And do your parents know that you are that's, Carrie Bradshaw? Uh, that's why I changed the name. So that that's they wouldn't why know. Carrie Bradshaw was born, because my parents were like, we're getting the column every week and we can't wait to read it. And oh, I was like, God. oh. And it was good to change the name because it gave some distance. Uh-huh. You know, artistically, I don't love first person. Right. Did they ever and know? Your parents? Did they ever find out? I don't. They never said. They never did. No. They never knew. So, uh, But they were very proud of me, though. I don't believe this. Now we're dumping guys for being too available. This is all solid proof of what I've been reading in this great new book. It says that if you really want to get married, you shouldn't be spending so much time around dysfunctional single women. Since Carrie Bradshaw was a writer, it only feels fitting that Sex and the City would inspire other writers. Television historian Jennifer Cation Armstrong wrote a book entitled Sex and the City and Us, How Four Single Women Change the Way We Think, Live, and Love. In the introduction to the book, I actually write my own story. Uh, yeah. It starts with um, I'm, I'm going to like I'm like can I accurately quote myself? But, I have it. I have it. Here. Okay. If you, if yeah. You, if you misquote yourself, <laughs> okay. I will correct you. But it, it starts with I, I left my fiance for Sex in the City. Just to be clear, I'm not an idiot. Like, I don't just go around imitating all TV shows. But the point was that, you know, I didn't go like, Sopranos, that looks cool, too. Jennifer Cation Armstrong isn't just a Sex and the City expert. She's a television sitcom expert. She's written books about Seinfeld and Mary Tyler Moore. But for her, Sex and the City was different. Her connection to the show was far more personal. I was watching the show when I moved to the New York City area. I was engaged and then um, started experiencing life in New York and really using Sex and the City as a guide just because, you know, we didn't have we didn't have as many apps then mm-hmm. to tell us where to go. We sure. didn't have Yelp. Sure. So I kind of would watch the show. It's a little embarrassing. I would mm-hmm. watch the show and then like go to those places that week. I didn't really but if there was like a bar or a restaurant, my friend and I in particular, she was new here too, we would just be like, all right, let's go there. That's where we're going. Right. And I always say I, I call it playing sex in the city. We would like dress up and do the thing. Interesting. Did, do you think a lot of women were doing that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, maybe not as blatantly as we were, because like I said, we were kind of embarrassing and it was okay because we were brand new right. to the city. And if you if you come to New York City, you realize like the overwhelmingness of it, like 
any block, you could go anywhere. Yeah. So I didn't know where to go. So this is how I decided. And where were decided. you from? I was, I'm originally from the suburbs of Chicago. Okay. And I had just moved here. Like I had been in Chicago and I had moved here with my ex. Right. And and we, when you broke up with him, did you say, I'm leaving you because of sex in the city? I did not. I did not. There were, like I said, there were many other um, issues at play. You know, he was my college boyfriend. Right. And we had been together for 10 years at this point. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's just, it's a little young to get together and sure. not experience other things. And when I got to New York and was watching Sex in the City, I could kind of match up these two ideas of like, oh, wait, I could go out. You know, I'm starting to get, like, attention from these other guys on the street and just kind of, like, it It just occurred to me a little late but just in the nick of time, you know, to really make me realize I wanted to have this Sex and the City experience before settling down. You see that guy? He's the next Donald Trump, except he's younger and much better looking. Hi. Do you know him? No. I've never seen him in my life. I usually dates models, but hey, I'm as good looking as a model. Plus, I own my own business. So this is a show about four single women. How was it? It wasn't the first show about single women. There was Mary Tyler Moore. There was Marlo Thomas. How was this show different than those shows? I mean, it is the sex to a large extent, you know. It's, I always feel like so many of these things are like me being like, well, kids, back in the day. Um, but you have to kind of cast yourself back a little bit because uh-huh. it's already been a while, right. you know. And when this started in 98, it's like nothing was like this. Mm. There was nothing even remotely like this in terms of the way these women were talking about sex on television. Right, right. It It is important that it is one of the first shows on HBO that breaks through because, yeah. you know, the first episode is actually about can women have sex like men, mm. which sounds like a, a throwback concept in itself now, <laughs> but was a really big deal. And the point was, you know, can women have casual sex? Well, if you're not going to hit on him, I will. And there she went, off to take her best shot with Mr. Big. Women... In the Midwest and all over the place, we're responding. It's a huge international hit, too. Really? Huge. How's huge. it How's it playing in other, uh, I mean, is it big in the Middle East? Yes. It, it's big really? everywhere that it's allowed to be. Now, some places very severely censor it. Right, you know? sure. But the places, and it's like there are places, there are Asian countries, for instance, where it's only just started to kind of be allowed to creep in or they'll make you know, the Japanese version, it's not officially right. the Japanese, it's not the same brand, but they'll make like a show and call it the Japanese version. But it's like a little tamer because that's how their mores are. And so there might be a whole plot line about, you know, a woman telling her boyfriend she's not a virgin. But I think that the romance and the New Yorkness and all of and the Americanness kind of translate really well. I uh-huh. mean, it's such a simple title, even Sex right. in the City, sure, you know. Yeah. So just that quest, there's also a very romantic element to this and mm-hmm. the friendship element. So all of those things and fashion, fashion translates. So it's really one of those things where it might not be the same way that everyone talks about sex, but the other elements are so universal. Oh, my God! Shh, Mary. Do you, do you know what these are? We're not even supposed to be in here. Manolo, Blonick, Mary Jane's. I thought these were an urban shoe myth. And Carrie Bradshaw has often been referred to as the first sort of female anti-hero. Is that mm-hmm. a, is that a is that a dirty word? Is that is that I think that's true. true. I think that's right, and I think that's a good thing. Um, uh-huh. 
I I think we need it. We could probably, I mean, we're getting there now, but it's taken a long time. And it's what's funny about it is I agree that she is that and that she's important. But if you go online, you'll see a lot of these kind of reconsiderations now where everyone's like, Carrie's awful. And it's like, she is. Uh But I see her as, you know how you have a friend who you're like, oh, she just, she doesn't make the best decisions, but we love her. You know, you're just like, oh, Carrie. You're at Biggs? You and I are having dinner tonight. Well, he got this veal. You blew me off for a piece of politically incorrect meat? You know, she she is kind of terrible some of the time. Well, that's what makes good television. If she made all good decisions, she wouldn't be a great television exactly. character. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, she'd be Mary Tyler Moore. Right. I mean, who was fun to watch for her own reasons. But there's a difference. And I think I like to think a lot about that show because I think like Rhoda would be the main character now because uh-huh. she's a little more flawed. And we like that now. Right. Do you think that the show got shortchanged a little bit because it was about four women? And and in terms of shaping the culture, I mean, The Sopranos gets so much credit for sort of launching the HBO that we know today. But Sex and the City was equally as significant, I think. Absolutely. In so many ways. And it was, I just, I always like to say it was also first. It was before Sopranos. So it helped to build it. Instant success. So was Sopranos. But, you know, I, I argue that for for reasons that I've often joked about, you know, Sex and City actually shaped culture more. Like, hmm. Sopranos definitely shaped TV. There's no getting around this. Everything around the world now is prestige, and the prestige looks like Sopranos. But Sex and the City, like, and, you know, made us go to brunch and change the way we dressed and change the way we talked. And so, yeah, I think I think in some ways it it, it shaped our culture more. And because it was women and fun, right— now there were very few women of color. Yeah, no women. No, I mean, of color. I mean, there were they 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 might walk through the <laughs> right. frame Extras. once in a while. Yes, yes. Um, but yeah, it was very very white. Like I mean, and it was in the era when, of course, others were still very very white. But also, we could have you know we kind of knew better. Yeah. So it's right on that cusp of like it's fair game to criticize it for. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying if we can criticize anything we want, but like. At this point, we kind of were starting to know better. Mm-hmm. And so it did take a lot of heat even then. And it's right. And I think, you know, this is something where I always say it's so evident why we need people of color behind the scenes. Sure. Because they didn't have any people of color on this, you know, writing staff. Yeah. What did it pave the way for? Sex uh, Were the shows that it are uh, direct descendants of Sex and the City? I think there's so many now. And that's the good news is that they're so varied. You know, it's like you can look at a broad city mm-hmm. or Insecure, which I love. And it has so much in common. I mean, she's talked about, Issa Rae has talked about being inspired by right. Living Single and uh-huh. Sex and the City. Yeah. You know, that, and that's what's nice is now we have all the, you know, girls for sure. And those are three very different kinds of shows, you know? And so that's what's nice is now we don't have to be, like, rely on this one show to represent all women. Yeah. It felt really sad not to have a man in my life who cares about me. No goddamn soulmate. Maybe we could be each other's soulmates. And then we could let men be just these great, nice guys to have fun with. Well... That sounds like the plan. I don't want to talk about what Sex and the City would be today because I don't know. Sex and the City is something that was. That's Candace Bushnell again. If anybody can sum up what Sex and the City was about, it's her. 
is has these messages of friendship and certainly at the beginning of living an independent life, you know, without a man or being able to explore that option and being single. And to me, that's what it's about. And right. that's what resonates. Emotions, characters, you know, social politics are the same everywhere no matter where you live, people are people, and there are all different types of people in all these environments. Mm-hmm. And people, someone's always going to be in that place in their life, and they're going to emotionally have friends like that. And it's something that you look to emotionally to make you feel like, you know what? My life's going to be okay. I can see somebody else who's gone through the same journey that I have, who's gone through the same time of of not knowing what the future is, maybe not knowing exactly how to behave or what to think, feeling maybe confused and alone, or trying to understand, like, relationships, and am I the only person who has this issue with relationships? That's what I think it's really about. Who are you? I'm fine. (laughs) But everybody else is very concerned about me because I'm here alone. I didn't realize I needed a date for my mother's funeral. Oh, Miranda. My sister and her husband want me to third wheel with them down the aisle. God forbid that I should walk it alone, because that would be the real tragedy, right? Ignore the coffin. There's a single 35-year-old woman walking behind it. Miranda. Coming, Betsy. Sex in the City was a pivotal moment for an entire generation of women, and its impact continues to be felt around the globe. Candace Bushnell has just written a new book, Is There Still Sex in the City? Next time, I'm lost at the Smithsonian. Hello, Archie. How was your day? Lousy, ain't it? Lousy. As much as people love to think that everything you see on television has some glitz and glam behind it, Archie Bunker's chair from All in the Family has a very humble origin story. It was, I actually bought it at Goodwill for, I think, $8. Wow, wow. Mm-hmm. So there was somebody who watched All in the Family and at some point looked at it and said, Honey, is that our chair? <laughs> <laughs> Lost at the Smithsonian is produced by Mary Beth Kirshner. Our executive producer and editor is Ellen Weiss. Technical support from Robin Wise, fact-checking from Danielle Roth, and scripting by Alex Berg. Mixing and sound design by Casey Holford and John Delore. Original theme music by Casey Holford. Our supervising producer is Jordan Bell, and our executive producer is Chris Bannon. Huge thanks to the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History, Eric Jentz, Ryan Lintelman, John Troutman, and Laura Duff, for all their help in making this show. Lost at the Smithsonian is a production of the Scripps Washington Bureau and Stitcher. I'm your host, Asif Manvi. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Asif and Facebook at Asif Manvi. If you like the show, don't forget to rate and review it on the Apple Podcast app. It really helps other people find the show. Thank you so much for listening.